0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and as an undergraduate, I
1: enjoyed my Latino American Literature course. And I'm Michael Ralph, and as an undergraduate, I enjoyed my Linguistics course. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Raven Imperial Stout from the Sandhills Brewing Company.
1: I had a really pleasant in-person experience a while ago, um, hanging out and trying some of their beers. I have not yet tried this one, and I'm really excited to.
0: We do have a soft spot for stouts. Uh, Fun fact, one of the brainstorm uh, names of this podcast five years ago was potentially studies in stouts.
1: Pours like a stout! We'll yeah, it looks like used motor oil, which feels like home. I'm so excited to be back from the land of yellow beers. So, uh, you will, we'll say more later. What are we doing today, Michael? Technology has taken a prominent position in many schools as we have taught these past few years, yet we need to look at who is using what technological tools and why. We read how technology manifests and reproduces categorical inequalities in education with some lessons on how to disrupt those means of sorting students. Later we read an article critiquing the prominent savior narrative used in education to avoid important conversations about classroom power dynamics and the treatment of teachers in society. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Sorting Machines, Digital Technology and Categorical Inequality in Education. This was written by Matthew Roffalo and Cassidy Puckett. This was published in Educational Researcher in 2022. It was published like 10 days ago. It's real fresh. I cued this article because I actually saw some tweets from the author, uh, Dr. Roffalo when it first published, uh, talking about some of the findings, and it piqued my interest because I know that technology is something that is really impacting our experience in classrooms right now because... Our relationship to information technology has changed as our social
0: restrictions, as we've been navigating social restrictions.
1: Yeah. And so even though uh, a lot of places, at least in the United States, are, are remaining in person, um, there... More people using learning management systems, more people needing to make things up online, more people using technology to try to improve what they're doing in the classrooms. And so this seemed like a really timely uh, opportunity to come back and take a look at technology and its relationship to, to students and to teachers and to classrooms. Uh, I'm a big fan in general of
0: philosophy of technology discussions. Um, as an overview, just recognizing that technologies, though they Solve problems and make things easier. They often have secondary costs that are not necessarily always obviously uh, that are not obviously apparent. And this article is suggesting that hey, as we continue to look at uh, information technologies, let's or, or other technologies, uh, let's recognize that they have some consequences that might not always be apparent.
1: But the one of the things that I did notice from the early content. Uh, was uh, the author's invocation of um, social reproduction theory, which is something that um, I got into pretty recently as a part of my graduate studies. And so I thought it was interesting to see that pop back up uh, and have an opportunity for concrete application in the classroom. Uh, Social reproduction theory is really this- Wait, wait, wait! I don't know anything about social reproduction theory, so can I make a guess, and then you can tell me where
0: and how I'm wrong? That's. I'll do my best. Okay, we'll improve together. Oh yeah, all right. So I didn't. I saw that, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. But I didn't follow it up. I didn't. I didn't do any looking up of what that means. Uh, so my guess is that that is about systems in place propagating their themselves, and uh, it was that's that's what I think it means. That's what I think it's about. And I think that the, the reason why I, was, I got there so quickly is because it sparked this idea that student teachers, one of the greatest influence regarding their teaching practice is this, um, be it um, conscious or unconscious, uh, emulation of the practice of their cooperating teacher. That the system that we have to teach teachers results in a propagation of practice. And that's what I was thinking of when I saw it.
1: Uh, There's a lot of good flavors in there. Again, I am not a sociologist, so I am giving you my understanding with uh, some instruction, but I am definitely not the expert on this subject. Uh, My understanding of social reproduction theory is... uh, close to what you're describing, but is really about systems like the educational system or uh, societal systems that are reproducing the processes and the dynamics and the things that are happening in the in the lower sociolog- sociological layers. Uh, for instance, racism exists in society, so systems will reproduce that racism in the system, systemic structures, um, Absent external forces, just generally they will reproduce what's happening at that fundamental level at the systems' level. We're reproducing that problem. And so in this context, uh, it's the author's claim, as I understand it, that inequalities in access to and use of and training for techno- technological use and, and technological tools will reproduce some of the existing inequalities that are present in our society. Because the focus was about inequality. And
0: they... I, it didn't feel like this was focusing on any uh, per, any single, necessarily, uh, demographic or circumstance. I don't know if it clarified, but they communicated that um, different regions, different places, different districts will make different decisions about technology that have different consequences depending on the student body, the situational uh, community, uh, and their philosophical goals. So there isn't a, it's not like, Hey, everywhere technology is causing this inequality problem. It's that it's actually really, um, fluid and circumstantial. And, uh, uh, there are lots of different problems in lots of different circumstances that technology or equality problems that technology is contributing to.
1: Something that I that surprised me about this paper. So I, you know, I don't read them when I choose them. We just I, we just cue them, and then you and I read them together in the morning. And so I was surprised to find that this paper wasn't presenting a single study, study, so to speak, but it was more laying that outline of here. Here are things we should study. Here are things that may be happening that are relevant to technology and their reproduction of social injustice. And so these are things that. People should go study or these are things that practitioners should be aware of and should reflect on and should interrogate their own systems to see if these things are happening. And so it was more of like a more of like a a perspective looking forward. Here are some ways that this might manifest based on theory. And here's what researchers and practitioners and policymakers should concern themselves with in the near future. One of the big ideas that they put out early that uh, that resonated with me was the idea that technology does exist in hierarchies, in, in valued hierarchies, in esteem hierarchies, that some technologies we value more and we associate with more prestige. Um, there's, these are better technologies. And I'm using some air quotes here, but the better students use these better technologies and worse students use those worse technologies. And we need to look really closely at how that might be happening, even if it's unintentionally in schools. And uh, an example that's, uh, that I think about that pulls from some of their description is computers. Computers show up in lots of places and get used in lots of ways. And if you just set a computer in front of a student in a classroom and say, code on this computer, computer science has a lot of esteem. There's a lot of value associated with that. There's a lot of resources put behind that. Students who take computer science courses in high school are often thought of as college prep. They often get into um, high prestige universities. It's great. Those Those are great students. If you take that computer and put it in a car, and tell students, go work on that computer in a car, that then gets diverted over to career technical education and different students get expected to participate in those courses. And systems ascribe to those students descriptors like not college bound. And they're they're all working with computers. Why are those computers over there for different students than these computers over here when they're both coding? They're both working with algorithms. They're both troubleshooting electronic problems why are those things different and interrogating why that is and dealing with the injustices that manifest in some of those assumptions. Yeah. The
0: uh, authors um, sort of defined three regions of problems. And this issue that you're discussing is the first one, which is about allocation of the technology to the students. And that that isn't, that is happening within the construct of student tracking and student like predicting these students are going to have these needs and those students are going to have those needs. And these students are can be trusted to use the tool in a productive way, but these students can't be trusted to use the tool in a productive way. And so they have to have a tool tailored differently to them. And so when we make those decisions, either as a legacy systemic because that's how the decisions have been made or even conscientiously. Uh, they don't, they don't use this phrase, but one of the, um, one of the underlying concepts in this cautionary paper is this concept that there are biased assumptions of utility that we say, this, this'll be a good tool for this student. And we may make that assertion without being aware of, of the biases in place that lead us to make that conclusion, uh, and that is a problem.
1: Yeah, and to be really direct, we're, when we're talking about biases for we're talking about racial bias. We're talking about allocating these technologies to white students, those technologies to black and brown students. But that's not—it's not limited to
0: that, and, right? And that's one of the things that they—they they did talk about racial biases in this paper. But they also, you know, open the doors that gender biases for technology are; those allocations are also. Happening. There are also gender bias for this, and there are socioeconomic class, like financial access biases for technology access as well. Um, so all of that is real, and uh, we should not be comfortable with that.
1: They specifically highlighted the current um, prestige that STEM enjoys in the education track, science, technology, engineering, and math desirability yeah. is really there they are they are laid out as desirable when we've got to make budget cut decisions humanities arts and music are getting looked at a lot faster for budget cuts than thinking about cutting a stem program and so when we think about that differential allocation of resources i've got a computer who am i going to give that computer to and how often are we giving the computer computers to stem courses and neglecting their utility and neglecting the the importance of courses that we wouldn't classify as a conventional STEM course. And I wrestle with that because I'm a STEM teacher. I, that's, that's where I work and that's what I think about. And so I, I an important piece that I took away from this paper and the one for our next segment is about self-reflection. You, you, you mentioned, what are we comfortable with? And it's very easy to be comfortable with things if you don't notice them. Yeah. And so what's really important I think is to look really closely at how are how are my courses getting resources? How are my courses recruiting students? Uh, and with, with regard to this paper, how are my courses getting access to equipment compared to students in other courses and teachers working with other courses so that I can identify, for me, since I work in STEM, where are the places where I've got access to re- more resources than are appropriate? Uh, the second segment was about... Um, uh how data is
0: used and collected, how digital data is used and collected. What are students doing with the digital technology we're giving them? And what are we paying attention to? What are we choosing to pay attention to? What do we put importance on? That is also sort of dynamic based on sort of the philosophies of the decision
1: makers. The existence of data, especially like really fine-grained user data. Uh, One of the examples I talked about was Knowing when students are logged on to a learning management system, knowing how long they were there, knowing what they clicked on, which messages they sent, all that information can be used to identify when students are struggling and with what material they're struggling and could even, you could write algorithms to provide them with supports or to alert the teacher so that they can get timely interventions to help them continue to make as much progress as possible. Or... All of that same data can be used for surveillance and can be focused on punishment and can be focused on uh, behavioral redirection, assuming that students are off task, assuming that students are trying to evade and subvert systems and focusing primarily on meeting out um, interventions that punish, that, w- that take away privileges, that take away access. And both of those things are possible in this space where technology is able to provide such a fine grain of behavioral data at a level that in most cases wasn't available until very recently. And so seeing those same technologies being used for very different purposes, there are going to be predictable patterns about which students are surveilled and which students are supported. And that's going to reproduce some of the same biases and inequalities, like like racial injustice, like gender injustice, like uh, class injustice. And so being aware of that as districts start to purchase subscriptions from online vendors and buy technological tools and make decisions about what they uh, allow or support their faculty to do with all of that data. is something that needs to be uh, interrogated critically because it is happening right now. And that is specifically relevant with the pandemic conditions under which we've talked for the last couple of years is there's a lot of digitization happening all at once out of a necessity in response to a health crisis. Now we have to look at what's happening with all that data. What are we doing?
0: Uh, one uh, Another thing that they talked about just briefly in that section was about the fact that these software, the so- these software often come with contracts, which uh, sort of kind of uh, reduce some agility of the consumer in the sense that if a district has invested in this software um then there like that is that is a that is kind of a that's that's a huge choice there's a, these are these are not like nickel and dime contracts there's a lot of money that goes into this and so now there's an expectation from either school boards or uh uh superintendents or other leadership in level uh influences to have the teachers use these tools Teaching is a profession, which means the professional must decide what tools, approaches, techniques, applications are appropriate and necessary to meet their goals in their circumstances. When, you know, there might be generalized approaches that that we could say are are generally uh, uh, correct, but how do you respond to the situation and what tool do you use and what technique and what approach do you use now is going to be different. And we would accept that truth for other professions like uh, being a lawyer or being a doctor. But the pressure to use this tool because the district bought it and it's not cheap is a real thing that now has this entirely additional social bias added on top of to the ones of the practitioners uh, and practitioners the regions. So there's, there's a lot of pressure there just because of how we do business with, with software.
1: Yeah, and it makes me think specifically of um, like plagiarism tools, is, is one example that comes to my mind in, in this regard, where especially those contracts that you're describing very often uh, restrict the autonomy of teachers to opt in or out of using those tools or to choose to use other tools more consistent with their values or with their, their pursuit of equality. And so let us imagine in scenario number one, I am a teacher. And I'm asking students to submit a work product online and I am required to run it through some plagiarism software. And that's not, I don't have any control over that decision it's very likely that I'm not going to spend a lot of time interrogating that situation because I don't have any control over it. And so some of the existing injustices baked into the algorithms and the way they use student data and the way they impact which students get flagged for potential plagiarism and how it responds to those to those flags is some of the contracts are separating the professionals who are using that tool from the, from the ability to make decisions about that tool because they know that teachers especially with plagiarism tools, very likely if I'm looking at that, they'll say, well, that's a problem. That's hurting some students in pretty significant ways. I want to use this other tool that might be more consistent with my philosophical values or with regard to plagiarism tools. I don't want to use any of them because they are all bad. But if the contract says that's not a decision you can afford to teachers, you reduce their ability to push back on those problematic elements in the tool themselves.
0: I love the third
1: one. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, digital con di- digital media and digital tools and their relationship with college admissions. Um well, uh as 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 someone who likes to decry social media, anything that will suggest that social media is problematic just tickles the right buttons for me. It's confirmation bias. I love hearing that I was right all along. Um, here's another way that I was right all along. So of course that's what this is about. Um, but the idea that college admissions are increase, or college admissions departments are increasingly looking at students um, online digital. Footprints, their social media footprints, um, and how they present and curate their, um, online personas is factoring into their, um, admissions. And what I think was interesting is that that struck me kind of like the, uh, the, the English rule never to end a sentence with a preposition, because what that actually came from was, uh, this um, practice, uh, it's really about Latin. This whole practice is, that, that whole phrase is about Latin and that individuals who are in a position in society who could hire private tutors to teach their kids Latin would, because in Latin, Syntactically, you can't end a sentence with a preposition. So, if you speak in English in a way that is consistent with how Latin is spoken, then you have had experience with Latin, and that is separating you with, with like a secret linguistic code from the people that haven't had that experience. So, it's a way to differentiate people by class and opportunity without asking about class and opportunity. And this kind of feels like the same thing to me, that individuals that have had um, recognizing that, oh, if you want to be part of this elite a- academic club, you have to have these elite academic behaviors in your online digital profile. Well, is it that nice to rub elbows with the fancy? Whereas if you are just a kid, Putting stuff online because you're a kid and you say dumb stuff and online is where you do your communication, not recognizing that that's going to be a space that has consequences to you socially five to 10 years
1: from now is just classism. What And what struck me in their description here was the emphasis that... I can I know in myself. I didn't talk much about social media wasn't when I was in a K12 classroom, but I know that given the opportunity, generally what I would say is don't be on social media. And what they describe in this paper was that that doesn't erase the problem because it's not just the negative impact of I'm going to say naively or ignorantly posting on social media, but if you're not actively curating some of those signal markers like you described on your social media presence, you're going to be outcompeted in some scenarios yeah. by the people who, by the students who attended schools that afforded them the social capital necessary to know you have to do that. Because there, there, there's no other way to know that ahead of time. And so having teachers with, the, with the, the class access themselves to communicate that to the students in a way that they can leverage reproduces that social inequality that already exists. And so it's not good enough to just say, don't use social media. It's not good enough. The stat that they quoted just blew me away in this paper. 68% of admissions professionals at at universities in a survey said social media is fair game to look at during admissions. 68%. Holy crap. Does that surprise you? It does. Wow, that didn't surprise me at all. I was, I I mean... Because it seems so obviously bad to me. Uh, And so, I would have imagined that, like, a few of them would be like, yeah, we can. And a few more would be like, we do and we don't admit it. But most would be like, the right answer here is no. 68% said out loud they would.
0: It is rare, it is rare that my cynicism predisposes me to be very unresponsive, to negative news. Usually you are the cynicist who says, oh yeah, well obviously it's terrible.
1: No, no, obviously it's terrible Ralph. And so, so this is a real thing. It's a real thing. And so that's what they're, what, the, what the authors pointed out and what resonated with me. I don't, I'm not sure what I would do with this as a classroom teacher. Cause I'm not sure that I want to participate in helping 10th graders curate a LinkedIn profile. I just got a LinkedIn profile like last year and I'm a grown man and I'm not happy about having it. I don't want to have it. And so I'm not sure that I want to say to students, here's how to leverage this. Here's how to leverage an advantage in this scenario because that advantage is fundamentally and systematically unjust. Even now that I know all of this, what would I do with it in a classroom? And that's certainly going to be influenced by who's in the what, which classroom, who's in there. Who am I? What's my relationship as far as the power dynamic I have with the students and families who with whom I'm engaged?
0: It's especially salient to me to think about as uh, as a now a novice avid instructor when like success in college for a select group of enrolled students is my goal, like support their acquis- degree acquisition collegiate degree acquisition or post-secondary degree acquisition. Um, My instincts of don't have a social media presence is one, too late. Like it's, that's, that's, that's terrible advice. Like all barns are open at this point. I, I have to get over that. And, say okay how can we improve our online persona to navigate a discriminatory system because our agreed upon goals is getting you a degree Some talk about
1: it with students in ways that are candid and clear yeah. yes and i think that's the first question is asking students do you want to participate in this thing If there's an institution that's willing to discriminate against students based on whether they had the social capital to curate a LinkedIn profile when they're 15, do you want to go to that institution? Yeah. And if you do, then I will help you. Then I will help you overcome that barrier. And if you don't, heck them. Let's find a place that is not going to leverage that opportunity for discrimination and I'll help you find that place. Because there is a diversity
0: of secondary education opportunity and we can make decisions and respond to that so that 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 was good thanks for saying that that helps empower each other
1: for our second segment we read, Love in the K-12 Classroom, a Critical Comparison of White Teacher Saviorism and Love as the Practice of Freedom. This was written by Shana Coppola. Published in 2021 uh, on Her Medium Outlet. I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Is it a blog? Might be a blog? But because it's a publication outlet, I'm I'm uncomfortable calling it a blog necessarily because I'm not sure that it's a blog. When
0: I go to com, there's a button that says Shauna's blog. There's okay, another this,
1: this
0: there's another one that says Medium. The oh, the blog? which is where, where this link is. But her blog does not
1: point to Medium.
0: There are two different links. There's a blog link and a Medium link. So it's link. not a blog. Not her blog, at least. Well, what is a web blog? It seems like... This is what a weblog is. We don't know. We don't understand what it is we read.
1: It came from the internet. This was published in 2021 on Shauna's Medium Place. And we don't know what Medium is, so we don't know what to call it other than that. We tried. We looked it up. We well,
0: know. what is Medium? An, on, an American online publishing platform.
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize that this is... Yeah, this is not this, is not this is not this is not peer reviewed, uh, for sure. Yeah, as a point of like, clarification, this is not a peer reviewed piece. It's something that she's published on her own outlet. We have had non peer reviewed literature in the past. Yeah,
0: so it's not outside of what we do, but it is outside of what we typically do.
1: We regularly and infrequently read non peer reviewed literature. Yes, this is true. one of them. Yes, and I actually uh, I cue this. I'm pretty. I was pretty excited to read this. I saw her. She posted it on Twitter, and I follow her on Twitter. She posted it when she published it, and I think it's an important um, topic to consider. And so I was really excited to be able to get to read it finally because I've been waiting to read it and have like been defending its entry in our show schedule uh, because I want to read it. I didn't want to wait another month to read it. So uh, so we're reading it because I follow her on Twitter, and um, and this is this topic specifically of um, of teachers and teachings relationship to love is uh, something that I think is important to consider.
0: Uh, well, any, anytime we have a, a piece that uh, puts identity front and center, I think we like to, uh, you know, acknowledge and, and lean into that, that I am a white male uh, that, is, that is a teacher. And I just going to put that out there that that is true. And that matters in this discussion.
1: Uh, Yeah, we're two white men talking about uh, a piece that is discussing, especially as she is explicitly discussing teaching from a feminist perspective, and she's explicitly discussing about teaching with regard to the pursuit of liberation, which definitely... She calls us to be reflexive about our position and our relationship to power dynamics, so let us do that. We are both white men. I am also.
0: Uh, I'm glad I read it. So... So she's in setting up her discussion, she's critical of our sort of entertainment media She's critical of a lot of things. One facet of that is the entertainment media's uh leveraging of the emotional um narrative of teachers as saviors, whether that comes from a place of power or privilege or elitism or opportunity whatever that 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 position of leverage comes from the narratives that present teachers as saviors that are uh sacrificing themselves to improve the lives of their kids and i'm a sucker for a teary eyed teacher movie so like i am her audience she's like hey hey if this is if you if you if if this is something that you dig you need to be paying attention to some things and so i appreciate that right you know Flag, flag, be aware of what's going on,
1: uh, some of the problems with this narrative. So early on in her piece, she gives a quote that I think is a good azimuth as we proceed through the rest of the discussion. And so it's a quote from Mustafa Kemal Aturuk, uh, who was the first president of Turkey. The quote is, a good teacher is like a candle. It consumes itself to light the way for others. And there are a couple of important assumptions in that analogy that we really need to look hard at. Uh, and one of them is that uh, the teacher consumes itself. Consuming itself as a profession is something that we need to think hard about. But she discusses she discusses for most of her time the other, the last comment, which is to light the way for others, which has the implicit assumption that other people need the way lit for them because they don't know where they're going currently. Yeah. So let's unpack that.
0: man there's just so much i mean she writes it uh this is one of those segments where i come on and say just read just read the paper it's n- this is not one of the super dense academically like complex with statistics you, you if you're not familiar with the milieu you might not be able to pull out all of the implications type of paper this is a clearly written um Easily accessible, uh, publicly accessible, social commentary about teaching.
1: Yeah, it's a 15-minute uh, read.
0: Yeah, at max. Please read it. So that's my first statement. And
1: the link is on our website. So so
0: go read it. Go read it. Okay, now that that uh, is out of the way. So let's unpack that. So in our Maslow back Blackfoot need, one of the things that teaching does for me is meet a self-efficacy need. It makes me feel like I am powerful and I have agency and I'm important. And these teachers are saviors. Narratives reinforce that identity. So it is very appealing to tell the narrative that I am making a huge difference in the lives of my students. And yes, it's hard work. And yes, I'm making sacrifices. Um, So that's, that's, and it also helps us as a society idealize the the like we romanticize the struggles that teachers face because we sanctify them, we tell narratives that sanctify them, and we say, you know, uh, they're amazing people because they work in such adversity and they give so much of themselves, and and it is it's, it allows us to recreate conditions where teachers are not being supported and then just shake our heads and say, man, it's a shame how well they're not, how little they're being supported considering how hard they work, man. They're just
1: great people. End of discussion. Well, and the, another piece of that is also this, what she describes to be uh, love as a one way act. Yeah. I can save these students if I love at them hard enough, which also lets society off the hook for talking about supporting teachers, talking about helping teachers get better at their profession, because we can simply say, if that teacher is working with students who are not making progress, well, that teacher just doesn't love their students hard enough. Nothing you can do about that. I I wrote
0: here that uh this is problematic because it can mislead well intended teachers to, and I put this in quotes, love harder as a mean of problem solving. As a means of problem solving. Like give of yourself, yes, but self destruction, like there's gonna be diminishing returns where you're not actually solving problems anymore and doing that is not noble or effic- efficacious or good for the kids. So don't do that. Like actually love your students by trying to solve the problems in your practice. Uh, is one way to go about it. Uh, and she addresses that by saying, okay, okay, let's now have a conversation about what love is because if we're, we're, we're not saying not to love, but maybe we can reconsider what it means to be love. It's not a romantic means of self-sacrifice at the hands of a society. It's maybe something else.
1: Yeah. And that's what she spends a pretty good amount of time talking about how love is represented in popular media, in movies and in books and in the stories that we tell. And what does that really mean? And she invokes a phrase I think is the perfect way to connect How teaching is represented in the popular consciousness uh, and the dominant popular consciousness, specifically in the narratives told by white people um, and the reality of what that looks like in a classroom. She uses the phrase love bombing, and I thought that was an ace invocation of an idea. Because so I happened to see that like earlier this week was the first time I saw that in another context. And so the fact that popped up again here in just a perfect application felt great to me. Be like, oh I know what that means and that what an amazing use of it. Love bombing is the idea that you have this teacher and they meet a class of students and they're they're a little bit non-plus, a little put off by their first interactions, but then they love the students so hard. They love bomb them. They have these extravagant, these excessive expressions of their love and concern for the students. They do to the students, these things that show them they care so hard and so dramatically that everything turns around and the students are saved. And, I think we can see the absurdity of that scenario if you put it into any other context. Like if you were to imagine an early romantic interaction, which is where I saw the phrase the first time of love bombing, you have somebody and you meet them and they're interesting and you exchange phone numbers and you're talking a little bit and that's about the extent of it. And they love bomb, which is say they send you flowers and they send you gifts and they suggest that you go on a cruise together. You're like, mm, this isn't healthy. Right. Let's maybe not talk anymore. But for some reason, the popular consciousness around teaching is that that is the best way to go about building relationships, and it it is no less than absurd. It is wrong. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm. At, I mean, like, uh, I appreciate reading this because I'm. I'm. This is for me. This is this is a cautionary paper for me. This is this is she she wrote this for me. Thanks. <laughs> like, I've done these things. This is a. This I have punished myself at home emotionally for not loving hard enough. Like, this is a check, a reality check for me. And I appreciate it. So, I'm glad she's writing it. I'm glad I read it. Uh, um, One of the things that uh, there... One of the things that she wrote that is important is that there's this underlying assumption that teachers are the stabilizing influence in a student's life. And... What I think is interesting about that, and I'm glad that she brought that up, because that's part of the romanticized narrative, right? And I think that there, that gets reinforced with an individual teacher's confirmation bias, right? I've got, um, you know, I've been teaching for 10 years, I've taught over a thousand kids, and um, there are some students whose lives are very, very... Uh, chaotic, and that I may have been the stabilizing influence in their life. Um, there may be, uh, I can count, I can probably count that number on fewer than than two hands, but that number is not zero. But then let's look at the other 997 students that I've taught over the course of my career where I was just a dude they saw at work, right? And And that I wasn't actually, I'm not this holy sanctifying torch carrier that is making their whole lives better i'm I'm a nice guy that they see at work, and that that's it right so this uh assumption that teachers are the stabilizing influence in a student's life is reinforced by confirmation bias because we adopted this romanticized notion of the role of teachers as love harbors uh and so then we buy into that and then we carry this burden that we're doing that all the time for every student. And just the reality is it's not the case. One of the things about the love harder narrative is that it is not student centered. It is so super teacher centered. It is like the classroom is about you being uh, the love and like, it's about, what you can do and who you are and how amazing you are and all of that. But, um, that's not what our job should be. And it's, if you're using your professional position to do that, then you actually have some needs that are not healthily being met elsewhere in your life. So like the classroom's not about you. If you're reinforcing narratives and your relationships and behaviors with students so that it is about you, then you have to change your behaviors it needs to be about them and you may be involved you should be involved in in helping them develop their story about them in a healthy productive uh uh, efficacious way but what is their story in the classroom like the well teachers have a contract today of 7 30 to 3 30 and they work more than that just because they care a lot but that's their choice so You know, they could just go home and things would be fine, but they choose to do too much.
1: They choose to go. So there's. Which is like immediately in conflict with if you talk to uh, an administrator about a. Teacher who is struggling or not meeting a benchmark or whatever, they well that teacher just goes home at three thirty. So whatever, and they just go home at three thirty. Well, their contract is until three thirty. It's like, well, they're not doing their job well, but they're not working extra hours. So of course, they're not doing their job well. Oh, I see. I've heard that. Like that's not a hypothetical. I've heard that statement. They just go home at three thirty. Well, so of course, they're not doing very well. Not
0: I, a true caregiver.
1: Bad at teaching. Shouldn't be a teacher. Yeah.
0: They don't. See, they don't you know,
1: like, like. If they want to be good at teaching, they got to work well past their contract hours. So the job of teaching is not what the contract hours are like that. That's not a professional approach to the, to, to the work that is saying you can only do this job. But what it means is that we romanticize
0: caregiving without valuing it societally. That's what it actually means. And I think that that's part of what she's, she's asking us to challenge these narratives and to look at the dynamics that we are um, complicit in and, and, or participatory in, at least. If we want to have our teachers have student-centered classrooms, how are we going to make teaching a student a teacher-centered profession? You know, like, without it being this romantic narrative of self-destruction, how are we going to make it a profession as opposed to a, you know, a fable?
1: This is better with all of you. How was the beer the beer was dark and stouty i don't know that it's my favorite stout of all time but it feels good to be home
0: uh aaron matthew we were on his podcast and he explicitly challenged she said you don't describe the tastes enough you just don't do it to me it is very bitter it is a very bitter beer uh i, I think i'm getting hints of a maple flavor I think it is very smooth and it has a non-acidic finish, which is different from other stouts. Uh I think it has a lingering but very, very mild, warm, and maybe orangey citrusy aftertaste.
1: Also, Aaron, I regret to tell you we, we do talk about taste more than that. I just cut most of it, so I'm sorry. I'm like, well, are we a beer podcast or are we an education podcast? And I've made my choices. Yeah. Because we don't know anything about beer. Who cares what we think about beer? We will sacrifice the rest. We appreciate you listening. We really want this to be valuable. I know this is a really tough year to be doing education. And so thank you for your work. You are a professional and not a savior. And we want to support you in all the appropriate ways. So if there's something we can read, something we can discuss, or something we got wrong, talk to us because we are here for you. uh, And we want to help you as best we can. We'll see you next month.
0: As we pursue growth. Discuss research. And struggle well.